Welcome to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar, brought to you by Neurite West. I'm David Lipton, a neuroscience graduate student at Stanford. And I'm Eddie Elbron, also a neuroscience graduate student at Stanford. Today, our guest is Professor Lauren Studer, a professor of developmental biology at the Sloan Kettering Institute in New York City. In this episode, we'll talk about transplantation therapies specifically for Parkinson's and growing your very own dopaminergic neurons. All this and more coming up. We're here with Professor Lawrence Studer, Professor of Developmental Biology at the Sloan Kettering Institute in New York City. Thank you for speaking with us today, Dr. Studer. You're welcome. Looking forward to it. Yeah, great to have you. So we usually like to start off a little bit by asking about your background, where you grew up, a little bit about how you got interested in science in general. So we know you initially went to medical school, but what sort of got your interest in doing research study? Sure. I mean, I'm originally I'm from Switzerland, and so I really started off in medical school. I was considering becoming a doctor, maybe neurology. I was also interested, but, but always got fast, me fascinated really the brain. So I wanted to know how the brain works. I think very good teachers in that are getting me truly excited and but, but really what happened is during medical school, I got also interested in some research and particularly that was a, of a crazy idea at that time that I noticed that there were the first attempts of people actually grafting brain cells into other brains. So like this idea that you trying to understand how the brain works, but suddenly there's a possibility of actually putting new cells into the brain and getting those integrated into circuits. That got me really excited with the idea that you could do all kinds of interesting questions about how the brain works or also using those in regenerative medicine. And that was really the idea to be applied, actually, in Parkinson's disease, which is a topic that they actually have pursued on and off for the last 20 or 25 years. It's really the idea that maybe you could apply that to actually replacing cells in the brain of Parkinson's patients. And as a medical student, actually, it was very exciting because we went all the way from the ID to actually implementing the ID. So I was part of one of the first clinical trials of doing fetal tissue grafting in Parkinson's. And that really kind of started my interest in in neuroscience or in re- regeneration and applying that to Parkinson's disease. And from there, then it went really on in various directions, you know, like finding a better source than fetal tissue, because you really don't want to go on with fetal tissue to, to, to hundreds or thousands of people if that's ever going to work. And so then we had to find a stem cell source, and really that's where I started to move beyond Switzerland, really, to find the right lab to actually doing that. I mean, I moved on to the NIH, trying to do a postdoc, and that was really the idea. I mean, what kind of source can you think of using for making these dopamine cells? If you don't want to get them from aborted fetuses, we need to have a renewable source. Initially, the idea, the obvious source is, obviously, these are brain cells. You get them from brain stem cells. And so we tried that for many years, actually, then to find the right source of brain stem cells to do that. And we had really one nice story where we showed that indeed you can do that if you isolate those brain stem cells from the midbrain, which is the region where dopamine neurons ne- normally are born. So you could grow this early midbrain. Neural stem cells in a dish show that they really divide and proliferate and then coax them to become dopamine neurons and inject them into a brain of, Parkin- of, of a Parkinsonian animal model. And that was kind of the first example. No? This was a paper you had in 1998 yeah, exactly. where, uh, at the time, it was pretty groundbreaking. Was there other examples of other types of neurons grown from cultured cells that were proliferated as precursors and then differentiated? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there was some evidence that you can grow neural stem cells and make neurons from those. But it was really the first example where you then could take those cells 
and called cure. I mean, I don't, I don't want to say cure, but basically you want to treat successfully an animal model of disease. So it was the first kind of application of a in vitro generated neuron. So we know we could make some neurons in a dish, but often it was not even clear what neurons are generated from those stem cells. And there was a nice example that you can make a very specific neuron, and that neuron actually functions in an animal after transplantation. Could you give us an example of sort of what you saw when you transplanted these cells? What is the model like uh, phenotype-wise, and what do you see after you do the transplant? Yeah, so the, that's an animal model that we actually still use today. It's a pretty crude model, but so the idea is that you have obviously a complement of dopamine neurons on both sides of your brain. And what you can do is you can inject a drug that selectively wipes out dopamine neurons that are basically taking up the drug to inject it on one side of the brain, and now the animal is depleted, about 90% depleted on dopamine neurons, but only on one side of the animal's brain. You actually don't really notice too much if you just watch the animal normally moving around. But if you then challenge it, for example, with a dopamine-stimulating drug, you see that the dopamine behavior happens only on one side of the animal's brain. For example, what you can do is you can then measure what's called the rotation behavior. So if you stimulate those animals with amphetamine, which acts on the dopamine system, only the dopamine cells that are still there are going to respond, and the animal is actually going to circle around its own axis about 10 times a minute. And so that's a very simple measure which you can quantify. And there are about five, six other such assays where you can basically see the skill set, like the motor skill set, not only rotation, but more fine movements or neurological, something which is called neglect. So these animals have a hemi-neglect, so they basically ignore things on the on, on the contralateral to the side where they were lesioned. So when you put food pellets there, even though they in theory, can see them, they neglect them, so they don't need food pellets on the other side. And so these are a number of assays you can use that have some relationship to what happens in Parkinson's disease with regard to movement disorder deficits. And so those you can actually restore if you now replace, again, the side where you destroyed the dopamine and you put now your in vitro generated cells into that brain, you can actually restore those behavioral deficits. Mm -hmm. That must be a really a very clean behavioral assay with mice not being able to, if they don't have uh, proper stimulation of their motor system on one side of the brain, they can't move the contralateral muscles and they just like rotate at a very high frequency. I think that the, the, the nice thing is it's very quantitative, it's very easy to measure, and so, so it's very satisfying that kind of the problem with it, it's not exactly Parkinson's disease. Because in Parkinson's disease, those cells die over decades you now in a human brain. And if you just inject this drug, you relatively acutely wipe out those cells. The end result is the same that the cells die, but the mechanism is different, and that could actually have consequences. And so I think that's still one of the unresolved challenges in the field. What's really the best model that most closely mimics actually Parkinson's disease, not only the loss of dopamine neurons. So you think maybe there might be some adaptation that occurs when these neurons are slowly dying? where the circuit is able to compensate a little bit that you're just missing with this blunt acute. Yeah, exactly. exactly. That's one of the problems. And the other problem is that even so, the dopamine neurons are primarily responsible for the deficits in Parkinson's disease. There are some other cells affected as well. And those you would really not model in this specific model. In that same vein, going and tying the assay to the actual physiology and of the actual disease. Continuing your work with Ron McKay from then to starting your own lab at Sloan Kettering and continuing on to develop certain conditions and sort of optimizing these conditions under which you could derive a variety of different neural cell types from these mouse uh, embryonic stem cells. 
and then culturing these under those different conditions. In that sense, it seemed like you're trying to replicate a lot of these in vivo conditions as much as possible. How do you go about hypothesizing which conditions, you know, which growth factors or metabolites were likely to have the greatest impact on these cell proliferation and differentiation? No, I mean, I think that that was also a learning curve. And again, when we started doing that in dopamine neurons, we quickly realized that you can apply the same principles for any neuron, in fact, for, for pretty much any cell type of your body. And so initially, it was really not clear how you do that. No, do you just randomly screen for drugs or how you're going to apply that? Are you going to put in genes? I think by now, we really have learned a lot over the years that really what you do is you mimic what happens normally during development. And it's actually a remarkably small number of signals that seem to kind of instruct self-aid decisions. So by now, we can have our favorite maybe seven, eight pathways, like very famous pathways like hedgehog signaling, wind signaling, and so on, that are used again and again. And you can think of them, the way I think of them is like, if you think of differentiation as a language of differentiation, these are kind of the letters of the alphabet. You have a number of letters that you're going to use. But what you then need to learn is the actual, the grammar, how are they used in which sequence. And kind of the main insight, I think, was really that it's not just this one thing that's going to give you the dopamine neuron, but it's actually a sequence of decisions that those cells make. And so that's like the syntax, you know, how you go from one decision to the next decision. And then often it's the same pathway. You use wind signals maybe three times, you now and you use hedgehog signals at certain points, but it needs to be in the right sequence. And once you understand this language, it becomes very modular. So, you know, at which moment the cell makes a decision to be a brain cell or, for example, a peripheral nervous system cell. When it makes a decision to be in the front of the brain or being, for example, in a spinal cord. And then when you are making the regional decision, when is it going to decide it could be a ventral cell or a dorsal cell? And so it's a bit like a zip code. Once you can exactly instruct the cell to be at the exact position, you have pretty much instructed it to be the right neuron. And so I think that that's kind of a learning curve when are these decisions made. And now, kind of if you tell me any neuron, I probably could guess. Obviously, you have to do the experiment, but you can guess which decisions, which signaling pathways you would have to trigger. So it becomes quite a predictive system. And that's, again, something which we think over the next few years, maybe it's really not just going to be cell type by cell type, but maybe what we can come up as a field is kind of a lineage project where we're going to recreate the whole tree of human development and do that in a dish systematically. And I think it becomes actually really feasible because, again, this grammar and language of differentiations now understand good enough to actually conceive such a project. How much was this sort of understood when you undertook your work, or did you really discover some basic developmental pathways in vivo by using your in vitro system? I mean, at the beginning, it was really very poorly understood, and we kind of had to call more or less trial and error. But by now, it's indeed there are examples where we made our dopamine cells, for example, or other cell types, and then we profile all the steps, and we find things that we didn't know before would happen in vivo. And then we go back in vivo and actually find that the exact same principles or the same genes are indeed required also during in vivo development. And again, if you, in such a way, study basic development in a dish, what's really exciting is you can do that using different techniques. You can do it like in the human brain or in a mouse brain, where we have 10,000 dopamine neurons. That's quite a few, quite a very small number. If you do it in a dish, you can make billions of those cells, and you can do biochemistry, you, know, you can do proteomics. You can do things that would be, would be nearly impossible to do in embryos because you'd have to dissect thousands of embryos to actually do that. And in human embryos, it would be completely impossible. No, you could never really do it. And I think that's really a new 
concept because we are so confident now that you can generate really relevant sulfates in a dish that you can really now conceive, study systematically human development in a dish and maybe learn novel insights about what can go wrong in development, what are the key signaling pathways and so on. What was the general reaction of the field, you know, to these sort of discoveries that you were making in general? Was there a lot of, you know, were people sort of uneasy or skeptical about things or was it mostly excitement and... Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's changing. I mean, it changed quite dramatically over the last 10, 15 years. At the beginning, basically, people would not believe you. They would just think, oh, you're making really some kind of weird tumor-like cell in a dish, how could it be possible? You just give a few signals, a few medium that this works. No, it's so complicated, thousands of cell types. And I mean, we didn't know at the beginning ourselves, so we had to convince ourselves that it's actually that, quote, simple. I mean, in hindsight, at least, it's, it's kind of simple, that the logic of how these cells make the decision. And I think the reason why it works is because these programs are really kind of hardwired in the cells. The certain transcription programs you basically trigger, and you don't really need to instruct every one of your 10,000 genes expressed. There are just a few key node points that then triggers the whole program. And so once you can do that, and you can show that, that it's really the same, or at least very, very similar in a dish, then I think it makes you much more confident. And that's exactly what happens. So now suddenly many people who are very skeptical suddenly start working on, on the same questions and kind of rediscover the things you already kind of knew, but now they are obviously... When they do it, they, they look at it with different eyes. And I think it's actually kind of gratifying that the kind of the approach is now becoming really much more standard in the field. And many people who really were the doubters initially start actually using it. So people have done in vivo studies to basically confirm, you know, what you found in vitro with the same ligands and, and growth factors. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. And w so when you sort of started out thinking about... Um, the repertoire of uh, developmental signals and morphogens that you would use? I mean, did you sometimes borrow from developmental literature in Drosophila or, or other organisms? Or, you know, where, where would your ideas come from? No, definitely. I think it was a mixture from mouse studies, from Drosophila studies. And I still remember I talked to some people in Drosophila, and where mostly do genetic screens. But there were a number of people actually told me that what they do often before they do a genetic screen is a very crude kind of chemical approach, or at least a pathway-based approach, where they really just disrupt those few signaling pathways, like seven, eight signaling pathways. And again, that's immediately made click to me, you know, that is exactly the way we, we are doing the same approaches. And it helps you very quickly to narrow down what's the right pathway to look at in more detail. And again, that's the question, are you going to screen 50,000 molecules? Or are you just going to screen basically 10 or 20 molecules? But you screen them in a way that it's combinatorial or iterative. And that turned out to be really the most productive way of doing it, that you don't need to do this huge high-throughput screens. It's actually just those few pathways that you need to use again and again. And these are the same pathways that control Drosophila development or control mouse development, zebrafish development. And again, it's kind of gratifying to see that nature uses the same pathways again and again. It might be small difference in the sequence, in the timing, but that's exactly what you then can, can find out in your own research. I wanted to highlight just a couple of really cool key papers, especially from earlier in your lab. 2005, your lab published a really interesting paper showing that you could take human embryonic stem cell-derived neural precursors and transplant them into the mouse brain. 
and have them actually integrate into the mouse brain. And these cells would intermingle with neuroprogenitor cell populations in the subventricular zone in the mouse brain amongst those mouse progenitors and then migrate into the olfactory bulb, just like the mouse's own regenerating neural cells. Firstly, a quick um, shout out to Georgia uh, Panagiotakos, um, former colleague who's one of the leading authors on the paper. Mm -hmm. Um, Second, what are the, in in your opinion, what are the sort of larger implications of this work in terms of laying some kind of a groundwork for the transplantation-based therapies in general? No, I think it was clearly one of those early examples to show that you can generate basically what you would call a neurostem cell from a pluripotent stem cell. And so then take this neural stem cell, and not only, again, for top, I mean, we make the final product, we make the neurons, but that actually put the neural stem cells in, meaning neural stem cells are actually going to persist. So for as long as we looked, at least a subset of those cells persisted in the SVC, and it expressed the markers, as you guys probably know, there's very defined marker for neural stem cells in the SVC, like GFAP and other SOX2, and they express the same markers as the mouse neurons just next to it. And they continued, again, making this transit amplifying cell. They migrated. And that was, again, one of the first examples to really show that you can really get such human cells integrated into the mouse brain. And that means, to some extent, for regenerative approaches, that diseases where you really need to have cells replaced constantly, let's say glial cells. So you might be able to not just put in the final product, but you might put in the stem cells that continuously can basically provide new differentiated cells. And I think in this case, for cell types that, gonna, that are produced throughout your life, I think that might actually be the pre- preferable way. No, otherwise, you're going to exhaust the protons over time. But if they get replaced by a stem cell long term, I think that's a very attractive approach. And in fact, again, now many groups have moved forward and there's a bunch of companies even that now use neural stem cells in a number of contexts for stroke, for ALS, and for other disorders where basically they, they rely on, on a very similar approach. Yeah. Continuing along that vein and just innovating potential approaches to treat disease in 2008, your lab in another paper that addressed another issue that might arise with doing these cell transplantation, and that is getting around the potential immune response of the host to the, the graft tissue. You transplanted uh, embryonic stem cell-derived neural precursors that first had a nuclear transfer from the host organism. So the DNA in the host was the same as the DNA in the graft to get around this immune response. And can you just uh, talk a little bit about that uh, paper and then kind of taking them together, how, you know, did this generate a lot of excitement among clinicians at the time? Yeah, I mean, I think it was, again, I think one of the first examples of what people at that time called, maybe it's a bit a misnomer, but they called it therapeutic cloning. So meaning that you can, again, via nuclear transfer, same technique that you use for dolly the sheep. Now you can really make your matched source of cells. And the way it was done, it was really nearly like a clinical trial. So we had 24 mice, and for every single mouse we tried, we could actually, and V means actually, in particular, Teru Wakayama, who's now in Japan, no, who did, was the first to do nuclear transfer in the mouse, and he made total about 500 or so of those lines. So it was a real brute force experiment, but means, you think about the clinical trial, for every mouse, it could make its own matched stem cell line, and then we could really differentiate those cells for every line that we tried, we could differentiate them successfully in dopamine and put them back. And kind of the main insight was also kind of interesting and still interesting in the context of what we are doing now. So, Because the brain is kind of a, an interesting organ with regard to transplantation, the immunological response. It turns out if you did these experiments, what you did is we obviously put the cells back in the same mouse and we found very little, if any, immune response. 
But we also put them back into perfectly mismatched mouse. So like you have 129 mouse or palpsima, they're completely mismatched. The question was, would they get rejected? And it was the answer somewhere in between. So they didn't get completely rejected, but you got quite a massive immune response and you got fewer dopamine neurons surviving. And so it's not like a kidney graft. In a kidney graft, if you are mismatched, gets completely rejected, no graft left. But it actually does persist, but they are kind of stressed or they are in a not very healthy environment with all the immune response. And that problem actually is still something we are grappling now if you want to translate this technique into patients. And if you don't have an IPS match therapy, you know, are we going to do that with immune suppression or not? And I think that's kind of, that was one of the first examples or actually the first example where we tried to actually tested that. What's the difference between a perfectly matched graft versus a pretty extremely mismatched graft? And so there's clearly a difference, but it's also not a complete rejection. And so I think that's an interesting issue, you know, how to take that forward. Yeah. So, I mean, immune compatibility is definitely a key issue there, but, you know, a, a big portion of Parkinsonian patients also have a genetic component to their disease as well. So does that add a sort of additional layer of complications in terms of therapeutics for, you know, IPSC transplantation therapy? No, exactly. That's a very important question. It's actually not clear in the field how to address it because, as you said, there is clear evidence that there's a genetic contribution to Parkinson's disease. Some forms are familial where you get, if you have this mutation, you get pretty much as 100% certainty. Parkinson's disease, some are much more kind of a susceptibility market that just contributes to an increased risk. And so the question is, again, if you have your own matched cells, you're already Parkinson's patient and you make your own matched cells. If you have a genetic form, obviously you could think of fixing the mutation, you could have this genome engineering technique, CRISPRs, and fixing it, something like that. But in most cases, you don't know that. It's just probably polygenic, a number of genes. It would be nearly impossible to fix it. And so then the question is, do you really have a higher risk putting those cells back? Because they already once got sick. Do they get sick again? And it goes into a very odd, interesting question. Maybe you get time to talk about that. Big interest in my lab too, which is cell timing or age of a cell. Because what seems to happen in Definitely embryonic cells, they are young, but also in IPS cells, they seem to get reprogrammed with regard to their age. Now, if you differentiate them into dopamine neurons and you profile them, they look like an eight-week-old neuron. Now, Parkinson's you're never going to get when you're eight weeks old or if you're just newborn, or it takes whatever, 40 years, 50 years. So the question is, when you now graft those cells, would it take another 40 years before they get again sick? Then it's not going to be a problem. But again, maybe in this diseased environment, it's going to be much faster. And so, again, these are all very interesting questions that they're not completely addressed. There is some evidence that actually the cells do follow chronology. There's a really cool measure you can look at that because, I don't know if you guys heard, but so in the midbrain where the cells are born, it's called the substantia nigra. So it's called the black substance. And it's black because these cells produce a pigment called melanin, the same that makes your skin color dark. Nobody knows exactly why those neurons produce it, but they do. But the fetal neurons don't. So a fetal neuron actually has no pigment. Even after birth, there's not much pigment. Only during puberty comes, comes increase, increase. So it was very interesting when people grafted fetal cells like we did. You can actually, when a patient now dies after two, three years, you look at the graft, is it now pigmented like a 60-year-old person? Or is it not pigmented? And it was largely not pigmented. So it looked like at least by that criteria it was young. And so they would again argue maybe it's going to take a while before the cells become fully susceptible to the disease. But again, there are arguments that go both ways. And despite, again, the pros and the cons, we think 
it's probably still safer to not use the patient much cells for the reasons that you mentioned, that there is a higher risk that they would get Parkinson's disease. And you're going to know only 10 years later now. And that, that thing is kind of too late. And so, so we think, again, at least for initial trials, you probably don't want to go patient match. You want to have a clean background that should be not at the risk to develop Parkinson's again. Interesting. So I guess we can add age to the long list of sort of factors mm. that we need to keep in mind um, with dealing with this very complicated uh, disease here. So great. Could you maybe give us a little preview of your talk here at Stanford as part of the SNI seminar series here shortly? Um, we'd love to hear maybe a short snippet of what that's going to be about. Sure. I mean, I think what I will focus on is less on the specification of the neuron. I will just mention a little bit of the very basics, but then really more on the application. And the two main applications really that we are pursuing is you now the, the, the disease modeling. And that's kind of what happened you know, after the, some of the papers you mentioned Obviously, the, the famous papers by Shinya Yamanaka that you can make IPS cells. And so we were among the first groups that really applied those technologies to modeling diseases. And so what I want to discuss is some of the, kind of the success stories you know, where we could successfully apply that to disease modeling, including some new unpublished work. For example, we have some work on a disease called Hirschsprung disease where we used it in some kind of an interesting tweak. You know, that's a disease affecting the enteric nervous system. And that's, again, a system that has been largely neglected. Very few people understand what happens in your gut with the nervous right. system. But actually, yeah. the amazing thing is you have more neurons in your gut than you have in your spinal cord. And so some people actually call it the second wow. brain because it's such a huge number of neurons, yeah, yeah. huge diversity. But in humans, very poorly understood because no system to study it. And so I tell, again, a bit of a new story where we actually can make those neurons now systematically and use them for modeling some of those diseases, like Hirschsprung disease, in a kind of an twi interesting twist where we actually use a combination of regenerative medicine and also basically a drug screen that we use it in combination to really ultimately hopefully find a new approach to treat Hirschsprung disease, which is a disease where these enteric neurons basically don't function properly, but in particular they don't migrate even to the right place in the gut. And so that's again a new story we try to pursue that kind of is at the transition of using pluripotent cells for modeling diseases, but also then using that uh, for, for actual regenerative diseases. And that's really kind of the second main topic that I want to pursue. The second main application is using pluripotent cells in regenerative medicine. And so I kind of want to give you an update because I think it's one of the examples where we are the furthest along to actually using this Parkinson's story all the way towards actually going to the clinic. So we are not yet in the clinic, but we're making quick moves to actually getting there. And I think it's interesting for people to hear kind of what are the challenges you now all the way from the beginning where you make the cells to go to the models to making those cells under GMP condition and some of the challenges that come up with that, the models you want to use and kind of see where we stand. And again, we have some interesting tweaks, again, that could be interesting for other people who want to take themselves forward for regenerative medicine to make, for example, better tools to get the cells integrated in the brain, not only getting them to survive, but to reinnervate the brain. And I think that's something you are very interested in. Or the question, like, once you can make a cell, are you going to take them at the very precursor stage? Or are you let them fully differentiate in a dish before you put them in vivo? And these are, again, very general questions. And we have some, I think, nice ways to test that and to figure out what's the right stage, not only the right cell, but the right stage for grafting. And I might also tell a little bit of the, some of the published and some of the unpublished work on our approach of using optogenetics. 
for testing the function of the graph. That's, I think, again, an interesting issue, like, that applies for all regenerative models. So often people have a stem cell or a neuron, and they say, okay, we have an animal model of disease. We graft ourselves into animal model, the animal improves. So great, you think the graft somehow caused improvement, but how did it do it? And you actually often don't know, is it that the graft influences the host? Maybe it regenerates some of the remaining cells there. Maybe it, immuno, maybe it causes immunomodulation, changes the niche. Or maybe actually it's the cells that just sit there as a pump, they pump out dopamine. Or maybe they actually integrate into the brain, they connect to the right synapse, they hook up with the right synapses, and they modulate the right way like dopamine neurons do that. And so that's something we actually for the first time now can test. So we can use optogenetics where we can switch on, switch off graphs. And so I think that's, I think, a really cool technique that you can in real time test, like you basically switch on, switch off the graph, see what happens to the animal. That's something which I think goes beyond what people tried in the past, where people try to like just wipe out the graph. So you can use things like a diphtheria toxin or other tricks to can kill the graft. But when you kill a graft, you kill all the functions of the graft. You kill growth factor secretion, you kill, you kill everything, and it's irreversible. With optogenetics, you can actually do that temporal. You, know, you can just transiently shut off the graft and see which right, one goes right. away, and you can do it only in one cell or in the other. That's so cool. I can't wait to see hear those results. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's something that's very exciting. Again, that's something we hope people, when, when they hear the story, you know they're going to go back and try to apply it to some of their own system. Let's say in spinal cord injury or, or in Huntington's disease. Right. or in, uh, So there are many examples, yeah. I think, but I would love to know that actually the neurons that people put in really work by hooking up or they have right. some indirect effect of, 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 of fixing, right. fixing the brain. So I think that's going to be generally, I think, a very useful technique. Yeah. And obviously, you guys at Stanford have some of the pioneers of the technique. Yeah. So, like with Carl, with Carl Dyson, he actually co-author on some of our work. We, he was very helpful in getting us started a couple of years back, like four, four years or so when we started the technique. And so we are definitely indebted to him, to his, his <laughs> workshop that he had actually there. So yeah, my poster yeah. going there was really cool. Uh, but so really, in neuroscience, it had a huge impact. In stem cell biology, somehow there was yeah. a big lag of thinking about mm-hmm. how using that. And there were some, I think, challenges again, why it was more tricky than expected. But I think now we have yeah. it running very nicely. And so we're happy, obviously, to share the so technique with anyone who wants to use it. Genetics is making its way into every niche of neuroscience. Totally. Yet another one conquered. Totally. <laughs> So finally, I'd just like to end with a couple of quick rapid-fire questions. These can be answers off the top of your head, whatever comes to mind. So the first question we'll always ask is, if you could go back in time and give you yourself, young Lawrence, a mm-hmm. piece of advice as a medical school student in this case, <laughs> what would you advise yourself? I mean, I think it's just that you have basically passion about what you're doing, so that you are, if, if you think you want to go with it, you need to be passionate about it. It actually doesn't matter. At the end, I think so much which direction you go, but it has to be something that you get deep enough into it that you're passionate. For example, we, people often ask me, so why exactly did I choose Parkinson's disease? And the truth of the matter is actually, initially I thought Parkinson's maybe not the most interesting disease now because it's just dopamine and secretion. I mean, not already a lot, maybe Alzheimer's or whatever is much more. But once I got into it, I mean, it just, I got hooked and I got passionate about it and pursued it. And I think that's something you need to find something that you really are passionate about and then I think that leads you very very far good to hear as a, as a grad student definitely take that to heart um, <laughs> For sure. so um, another question so what would you describe as your biggest aha moment in science that you've had 
or one of them? I've heard a bunch of those. I mean, I think one of the first ones was really when I worked with mouse ear cells. And again, trying to figure out, because like any work is neural stem cell for many years. And we had only successively already had the right specified precursor, otherwise it wouldn't work. But these mouse ear cells, like all the factors that we thought should work in the neural stem cells, never worked. Once we applied them to mouse ear cells, it immediately worked. And so I saw immediately like the right factors that tell me uh, we made midbrain in a dish, we made dopamine neurons, and it was actually quite efficient. And that was, I think, one of the biggest aha moments because it just told me I need to switch from neural stem cells to pluripotent cells. And it was immediately clear why. Because basically with neural stem cells, when you manipulate them, you're already too late. So like developmentally, they already missed the window during which you induce them to have the right zip code to be the right region. By the time you isolate them, you're already in the forebrain, you're in the midbrain, you need to have control over telling the cell what to be. And that immediately clicked to me, and that basically now again made all this possible eventually that you can make any cell type pretty much. Very cool. And finally, the last question is, what would you be doing if not science? That's a good question. That's a good question. I mean, I was very interested in sports for a long time, so I'm like an avid runner. I was fairly good at like competing like mid to long distances. That was kind of my main... I did also track and field for a long time. So that was something I definitely... Was excited for quite a long time. The other thing that I really love is things like music. So I played music instruments. I played the cello. Even so now I don't really do it that much anymore. But I still, I mean, I live in New York City, so there's no shortage of going to beautiful concerts. And so I think music is also something I could imagine doing as a job. That's something I think I also could be passionate about. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Dr. Yeah, Theater. It was great. All right. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And thank you for listening. Neurotalk is a production of NeuroWrite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, Andrew Gundren, Adi Yee, Eddie Alberon, and myself, David Lipton. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk, as well as our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, and read articles about everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. This is Neurotalk. I'm David Lipton. And I'm Eddie Alberon. 